Welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. I'm your host, Sam Charrington. All right, everyone. I am here with Haitham Abul Fatouh and Ketan Umare from Lyft. Haitham and Ketan, welcome to the Twimmel AI Podcast. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, so we're here in once again sunny San Diego. <laughs> we got yeah, like yeah. the two days of like horrible, miserable, rainy weather, you know, earlier in this week. And we're here to talk about some of what you're doing in Lyft, namely the flight project that you just presented yeah. on yesterday. It's uh, open sourced. And it's open sourced. Yep. And it's open it's sourced. So we're going to dig deep into this. But before we do, uh, I'd love to have each of you kind of introduce yourself, share a little bit about your background, how you got to work on ML Infra, and, you know, what's your story? Talk to us. Kathan? Yeah. Uh, hey, my name is Kathan. Uh, I lead the flight team uh, and probably one of the, 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 founding, <laughs> the founding person of flight at Lyft. So my background is I work across different industries from hedge funds to retail to logistics to cloud uh, and mapping uh, and now finally back in sort of transportation area and uh, one of the uh, things I've been interested in is just large-scale data processing and solving uh, business problems where data and computation comes together and machine learning is a place where you know that's really really important. I started lived in 2016 but I started on flight like close to the end of 2016. Um, and it was mostly like you know I, I started working on this team. Uh, we were trying to get ETAs which are uh, uh, I'll explain what an ETA is. So when you open up a Lyft app and you see hey three minutes to get your driver or if you are in a, in your car and you see like it will take 15 minutes to reach the airport, sometimes it's accurate. <laughs> and it's accurate uh, mostly because of a ton of machine learning models that uh, go in the background and including understanding how the road traffic is and understanding all kinds of uh, things that are happening uh, on in the current conditions uh, on the road. So using, uh, so I was leading that team uh, and uh, we, I joined the team team there was another engineer on it he used to run the models all on his laptop uh, <laughs> and uh, he we were like how are you running this and he's like i have this script i've just run this and it just you know, runs uh, and, and it figures out and it, you know then i run this other script and then i run this other script and i do that's crazy <laughs> so um and we I'm actually, trying to decide whether to interrupt you and just like dive deep into that. That sounds crazy. <laughs> it is uh, crazy. Like running yeah. a model that's doing like live prediction of ETAs on it's the not laptop live, or no. is like training? Just training or, the model. Oh, okay. training, training the model, the model. Okay. or collecting yeah. the data for the model or things like that, right? And actually, Still, like would, there are reproducibility issues and stuff like that. A lot of issues. Yeah. But you wouldn't be surprised how many times this happens in the industry, right? Uh -huh. It's just like... The and and this is actually how we lead into it because this is the current state of um, the infrastructure for machine learning and especially productionizing models is mm -hmm. didn't exist. We didn't think about retraining these models at that time and quickly we wanted to retrain them and then I'm, the laptop's not going to scale. Mm -hmm. uh, the other story that happened, uh, so this is just leading into flight, right? And the other story that happened is there was a research scientist on my team. Um, he created a model, and that model's pretty cool. It served Lyft for many years, um, but he left the company, 
and the model went with him probably <laughs> so we lost it like we had no idea where the wow. model was and uh, as a leader they told me hey let's recreate this model and i i was like i don't know how to and i we knew the algorithm so we just rewrote it and you know got everything done it would not give the same results mm. and it like it literally took us 3 months to get like to the same level of accuracy wow and we were like okay so he had done all of this extra work that we really kind of lost we didn't waste too much effort on it because we knew the algorithm we knew some of the tricks but right. still it's like wasted effort in trying something out and then going and trying out the accuracy and you're like oh it's three not much you could have spent on yeah. something else yeah it's not it's not like one person spending all the three months sure, but it's sure. still like it's like it's wasted effort <clears throat> so at that time i decided that this needs to be this needs to change um and and delivering new models became slower and slower so that was the birth of flight at that point we used to call it a bad name i'm not even going to put it on the <laughs> on the podcast but uh, it used to um and we wrote like i wrote like a first draft proposal internally and everybody was like you're crazy this thing is not never going to work <laughs> uh but somehow in like a f- couple months uh, we erected a uh, like the v0 v1 of this thing mm-hmm. and we got a team to try it out and and uh, this team was also struggling a lot with delivering their models and the the intersection where flight really fits in is when you have a lot of data and you want to produce uh, repro- uh, reproduce your models again and again like maybe every day every week or every hour and you want like the trace of what happened and the lineage between everything mm-hmm. uh and this team actually fit the bill uh and they for the first time they were able to deliver a model in like 6 months and this was a gigantic model it affected the bottom line of lift and it was really really meaningful and uh, it was not without a lot of you know stress and working hard at, through the nights but that was the starting of flight and that was in 2017 mm-hmm. uh and then we didn't stop like the the use That's in the right. company just skyrocketed uh and and we at that point we were like hey we should open source this thing because it's such a big problem uh to solve that a small team at lift can probably never solve it on their own and if you open source it we should be able to work with the community hear more ideas and improve it all the time So we actually rewrote the uh, everything uh, from scratch made it kubernetes native uh took uh, took like the primitives that we understood from looking at all the various use cases and mm-hmm. that's, that's the amazing part amazing part of lift like it's a rich ground of amazing use cases and we used all of that and put like basically distill that information into flight mm-hmm. and uh, that's our first cut uh into the world item Tell us about your uh, your background and what you do at Lyft. Sure. Yes. So uh, my name is Haysam Abuftu. Um I have worked previously at uh, Microsoft and Google and I like I had a a journey, you know, up and down the stack. I worked in like enterprise great applications in low level storage like Azure storage. Um and I you know at some point uh wanted to try out ML and I kind of found this sweet spot in um, ML infra to uh, fit the bill kind of thing uh, for me. I joined Lyft two years ago, uh, January. And at that time, it was that we're 
still stabilizing the prior uh, incarnation of flight, <laughs> that, uh, <laughs> the unnamed uh, <laughs> um, uh, product. Um, it was great, and teams loved it. But as uh, yeah, as Kitten was saying, at that point, um, like I, I joined in the midst of this uh, discussion about uh, what do we do next. Um, uh, so I got to uh, be part of the decision about going Kubernetes native and um, all the the very I I see as critical design design decisions uh, we uh, we took in flight to actual decisions all the the like going um, with a very strong type system and very strong language specifications through protobuf like there is there are a lot of uh, things we view uh, we are like very opinionated about uh, in flight and a lot of things we are not we are we like explicitly decided to uh, leave open um uh, we based on the experience we had we think we found uh, a good path for where we uh, like the, the give you the learnings or like enforce the the learnings we have had before um, in how we uh, you know ask you to write uh, your code or deliver your uh, uh, models or your data processing tasks or whatever uh, and at the same time leave it open for a variety of different uh, workloads that can run the system and. Uh, there we are. Uh, I'm very proud with how the product uh, turned out to be uh, and the launch uh, and the reception we have had um, during the conference. Awesome. And yeah. uh, just Pretty a shout fun. out to the team. It wouldn't have been possible yes. without like just crazy amounts of effort with the team. It's an amazing team at Lyft. Yes. Um, and we are proud of all our users also at Lyft. It's just they have, they have like stayed with us through <laughs> yes. bad times, yes. and good times. <laughs> and, and thank you for all the support. That's awesome. Yeah. Awesome. So, Kaitlyn, you've given us a, kind of a little bit of uh, an overview of flight. Maybe you know, take a step back, and you know, what's the core value proposition that uh, flight is, is offering? And and Hytham, you mentioned that it's Kubernetes native. Like, how does it relate to to Kubeflow? Yeah, for yeah. example, That's a good yeah. question. Um, good. Let, yeah. let me start with the motivation of like, or what is it that we think is missing, and what we were trying to address. One of the things, as I said, we started in 2017. So that's like uh, the landscape was very different at that point, right? So we've evolved from that point. And this is a, a V2, even though actually I think this is the real V1, but this is a V2. So that means we mm -hmm. went through a process of like actually making something and failing and then redoing it. That has a lot of learnings with it. So one of the learnings is that we, we feel that there is this artificial divide that's happening between ML and data. Uh, but actually, they they go hand in hand. Like you, mm -hmm. it's not that these companies have amazing data systems. They are not the Google's, Facebooks, or the Amazons of the world, right? They are smaller companies, nimble, and they want. Um, they are basically building their data stack too. Uh, so, uh, and the other thing that we realize is there are teams cross collaborate quite a bit. Machine learning models are built, let's say, by a team but the team B probably provides the data that builds that machine learning model. Mm -hmm. And and actually the, the, the fallacy of uh, separating them is that many times in production, we use machine learning models to predict, and that creates data that becomes a fact in the fact tables in the data world. Mm -hmm. And then many times you use machine learning models to convert that fact to a dimension, which trains other models. So there is this cyclic nature that's happening. And this needs to be captured at that granularity of saying that, you know, there is data and processing and 
machine learning all interacting together. Uh, so that was the motivation behind Flight, that we need a single tool and a platform that allows for uh, collaborating, sharing, and MLOps along with, um, and with the with definite focus on orchestration. Uh, and that's why at the core of uh, Flight is a workflow engine mm -hmm. that actually runs all of these pipelines. But from the idea point of view, it was built for collaboration and, and sharing across the company, various aspects, as well as like processing and uh, machine learning on the same tool. And so maybe to make that more concrete, uh, we can kind of compare contrast to what Kubeflow is trying to do. Right. Sure. Are they... Um, you know, orthogonal? Are they complementary? Does does it's, Flight use Kubeflow? Uh, it's a that's a great question. Um, so so Kubeflow, um, uh, it started a while ago. It started as one thing. Initially, they had just the uh, TensorFlow operator, um, and uh, as the product started maturing, they it became not just a product, right? It became a collection of products uh, under the name Kubeflow. Uh, mm -hmm. Kube, Kubeflow serving, uh, Kubeflow pipelines, uh, TensorFlow became its own thing. You can use it on its own, and so on and so forth, right? Um, so we don't uh, we don't see the comparison between Flight and Kubeflow as a collection of tools or products. That the fairer comparison I would say is between Flight and Kubeflow pipelines, uh, which is like one segment of Kubeflow. Um, that sits on its own in a way, um, and the uh, underlying engine, the, the the workflow engine under Kubeflow pipelines, is not actually written by Google. It's uh, an open source product, uh, a, a different product, right? So it's also swap swappable that way. As uh, so it's, uh, you can think of it as like a puzzle kind of thing, and these are just a few pieces of that puzzle. And Flight does things slightly differently for those few pieces that are comparable. If that makes sense. Mm -hmm. um, so then, are uh, like, you saying then that uh, Flight might be a swappable alternative to Argo under Kubeflow pipelines? Actually, yeah, we might. It might be more vertical than that. But I'll give you an example. <laughs> okay. Like yeah. in Kubeflow, there is PyTorch and TensorFlow. Yeah. Two ab absolutely opinionated, distributed, or not distributed, sorry, deep learning frameworks. Yep. They both exist, right? Right. And uh, it should be the user's choice of what they want to use. Mm -hmm. um, and that's how I feel about how flight and let's say Kubeflow pipelines uh, work. They might, mm, they could okay. interrelate, uh, and that absolutely it's in our best interest to make all of these tools play very well with each other. Mm -hmm. But they could be or, like completely vertically available as two alternatives, uh, and you could use Kubeflow serving to serve your models, but build those models on flight. Um, this flight offers a great abstraction on. Uh, on compute and it gives you big data with it, right? So, mm -hmm. so that's essentially our uh, differentiator where we think like Kubeflow pipelines doesn't even try to do that. And then the lineage and the cataloging that we do uh, is further on built on top of it, which is also the other bit that uh, we should talk about, I guess, later okay. on. Well, you mentioned that one of the aspects of flight is that it's strongly typed, uh, makes me think. Uh, most immediately to like FB Learner and kind of its approach to typing and you're nodding your heads maybe. Yeah. yeah. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that kind of design decision and yeah. its implications? I can actually tell you the first time I saw the FB Learner blog. Uh -huh. uh, you like it, it's, uh, it's uncanny, but it's also unbelievable <laughs> at that some level. So we looked at it and I shared it with the team. I'm like, did you see this? Like, this looks exactly <laughs> like our... And this was around the same, remember, 2017, 2016, uh -huh. somewhere at that time. And we had the same 
like the annotation uh, decorators in Pakistan. Yeah. Okay. And, and like, and we're like, wow, yeah. is it like there are people thinking about like like us? Uh huh. But actually, that that, that yeah, that yeah. helped us to mm-hmm. you know just I, I, they were earlier than us. I'm not saying that. But it's just yeah. that that kind of helped us believe like more in that we were probably on the right path yeah. right yeah. yeah and so um yeah yeah so we in in the version one of flight we did not have a very we had a type system but the type system only existed on the on the sdk as we call it in the python mm-hmm. uh where you author the well, python maybe take a on. step back for folks yeah. that um you know here type system or strongly yeah. typed so and there's no context it. for that. What does that mean from the perspective of the user experience for flight? Yeah. So let's say you write a function in mm-hmm. any language. You you have some inputs and outputs to that function. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are languages like Python where you do specify inputs and outputs, but you don't know what those types are barring the new typing Whether system. Whether they're strings yeah. or integers yeah. or floats yeah, but or like, whatever. But you don't or know, right? more complex it things. could be duct typing in there and yeah. so on. But if you go to a language like Go or Java or C++, they're really strongly typed. You have to say this is an int and this is a string and that's the order and whatever, right? Like right. Uh, There are benefits of having types in the system and that's why people love them to use them in programming languages because you get compile time safety. When you build the function, if you pass in an int and try to use it like a string, you get an error at compile time. So you right. don't have to, you know, wait for it to run for 10 days and then figure out, oh, shit. <laughs> <It's fair. laughs> But in Python, actually, there was a mo- there's more of a movement to add these kind of typing, compile time type safety. We think that that is the same thing that should be done for why not do it for all functions? Like in, in our RPC systems today, like services, microservices that people are using, we have types and we have APIs and people talk to them and then they receive outputs uh, in flight. That's how we've designed that like every single function is a task, we call them. Mm-hmm. And these have inputs and outputs. Uh, and by strong typing, I mean these inputs and outputs have a known set of types. But what are the known set of types that you need to use with machine learning? So we had to come up with a type system that allows you to specify the various types of types that users use when they are building models. Mm-hmm. Uh, like an example could be a structured schema, uh, which is like a, a, a row vector. Or it could be a tensor. Uh, it could be a, a, a blob, which could be a serialized model. Mm-hmm. And it could be in various formats. Could be onyx. Could be, uh, and those could be annotations on top of that blob, saying that this is a you know serialized with the TensorFlow uh, serialization format. So uh, that's the type system that we are referring to. Uh, so when you declare a task, uh, if it's a model building task, and you use joblib to serialize it, you can output a model that says it is joblib.dat, mm-hmm. uh, and then the next task that actually consumes it knows that, oh, this is a, of type joblib, so I can just load it into using joblib. And if you try to now put these two tasks together, they will work. But if you try to put a task that does not understand joblib, only uses TensorFlow, mm-hmm. it will fail at compile time. Right. Uh, and that's what we wanted to achieve. Uh, in a pipeline, try to fail earlier if possible. And then one of the things that that enables for uh, the FB Learner case is that you know, they can take all of these tasks that are strongly typed, kind of create a dependency graph, and then execute them in parallel, like as one completes spin off mm-hmm. its descendants. Uh, are you doing similar things? Yep. 
exactly i just yeah i yeah. remember something you wanted to add to the timing system so one one of the things we uh, one of the decisions we made there was um, using protobuf to declare the to specify the types uh, and then that might be one of the distinctions between the existing systems you might see even like if we learn and yeah. others uh, and flight and that makes it not like takes it one step further it doesn't only allow you to put python tasks together uh, because that after you declare the task in whatever language you choose to uh, using our spec you can you know let's say write go function becomes one step in your graph the next step might be a python task uh, in a different container or, you know, what have you. Uh, because at the end of the day, they all compile to this standard spec um, that has standard set of types that are compatible with, you know, our SDK in any language. And yes, uh, I guess uh, back to your question, uh, it does allow us to, we, once you declare the graph in this spec, um, uh, we have a compiler that looks at the graph and figures out the dependency graph. Um, and we can go as parallel as we as the system would want, yeah. uh, you know, pairing the dependencies and all of that uh, into account. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and and there are other advantages like what I think Hitam uh, uh, did. I just wanted to add one more thing. Is the reason why we did this is because we saw use cases within Lyft, yeah. where users were writing models in Scala for. Spark processing, right? Like they just mm -hmm. want to do Spark processing Scala. Yeah. They don't want to write this in PySpark. They do sometimes, but sometimes they want to use Scala for higher performance. And uh, we are like, how do we move the data between these two different mm -hmm. languages? And so that's why we came up with. So we also using Arrow underneath. Uh, this, is, yeah. this is an open source project, yeah. um, but like we wanted to create a layer on top of it so that it's easy to construct these uh, polyglot pipelines, mm -hmm. uh, if mm -hmm. I may. So we're talking about stuff like type systems and protobufs and Arrow and not language that the typical data scientist talks it about is, a lot. It is. Uh, is, is it, you know, have you built abstractions that make it more acceptable to data scientists or do you <laughs> just have a different audience? <laughs> it's that's a, a very good question. Yeah. Uh, and actually sometimes we do debate uh, amongst ourselves, what's our audience, right? Yeah. Mm. But uh, we do want to appear, uh, appeal in the beginning at least uh, to, the, to the savvy uh, engineer like us uh, who wants to get his hands a little dirty. But as we are progressing, we are we are creating layers on top of them. So think about this, we are at like, we built the foundation mm -hmm. and now building layers on top is much easier. So for example, like about, we are just about to merge full notebook support. So you can write tasks in notebook. So like, we're just gonna add like support for Jupyter notebooks. The way and the way we are thinking about Jupyter notebooks is users uh, like data scientists and researchers love to use Jupyter notebooks. Mm -hmm. They write code in Jupyter notebooks in a very different way than how Engineers write code on like using IDs, right? Mm -hmm. so it's very different. And we want to keep and preserve that semantic of writing code. So we actually found a project called Papermill, uh, sure. which is pretty cool. Uh, we like that. Oh, that's pretty cool. Originally Let's, out of Netflix, uh, Netflix. now yeah. in a backbone independent company. Yes. Yeah. Uh, and so we decided to adopt it uh, and we take that and we convert uh, a notebook into a function. Mm -hmm. uh, into our system with the same inputs and outputs. We do the magic of like passing the inputs and outputs. Mm -hmm. You just write your code as if you're writing a regular notebook. You can try it out, do whatever, drop it into uh, a container, give it to flight, 
uh, and then it'll take care and execute it and actually record the output notebook and store it for you. So you can go back in time and look at it uh, mm-hmm. even if you want to. So uh, yes, our audience is uh, was uh, engineers in the beginning because uh, we do have that sort of audience at Lyft, but mm-hmm. we are uh, we also have like uh, data scientists and research scientists using more and more, and we are improving every day uh, for them. Uh, mm-hmm. So if you if you start today, you might look at the Python flight kit and see that it's a little more suited for people who write with uh, IDEs. Yeah. But uh, with the notebook introduction and, the, and our demo, we showed like how yeah. to use everything with the notebook. Uh, mm-hmm. We are going more towards research scientists. And they will not even see some of the things that we do. Like, for example, I'll give an example. In a task, you can return a data frame, a pandas data frame. Mm-hmm. And we understand that a pandas data frame is actually the, the row vector that we do underneath, which is converted to a protobuf and arrow, and it's just sent through. You don't even have to think about it. You just work with pandas data frame. Mm-hmm. And hopefully, and we are thinking, and we, we are not yet implemented this, but that goes into Spark data frame yeah. and the other side. Okay. So... So you, we created the abstraction layer for that. Okay. Does that introduce a lot of latency? I was having a conversation with uh, with someone who was talking about reason why they don't use TF serving is because they're primarily doing inferencing on images, and it requires that you have to put everything into a data frame, and there's a bunch of latency that that introduces. Do you run into these kinds of issues where your, you know, your abstraction? you know, hides kind of some nimbleness and what the underlying data format is and you're doing conversions underneath the covers? So actually Arrow in that case is an extremely interesting project, according to me. It's it, The aim is to make zero copy abstractions okay. from uh, okay. one format to Pandas data frame, to Spark uh, data frames. And I think the founder is, I think it's Wes uh, who... The guy mm-hmm. who was McKinney. Has. Yeah, yep. so I have been following that project, and I think uh, that's like more more of that is required, uh, okay. where we just should stop wasting CPU cycles on transforming data right. <laughs> from one format or one language to another, and more use the zero copy abstractions that we mm-hmm. we can create. Like, and and that just makes the open source ecosystem much nicer, mm-hmm. and and that's why we chose. Arrow. But you don't have to, like, for example, if you're uh, emitting out images, you don't have to have a data frame for it right. in, in flight. You can just say, I am emitting a directory of million images, and we will take the million images and upload them and, and download them onto the other machines and use them. Okay. So, yeah. So there is, like, you you can use data frames, but you don't have to. And right. that's where the type system comes in. Okay. It needs to be more granular yeah. than. Okay. So we've talked a bunch about the type system and the workflow uh, that that enables and kind of some of the user experience. Uh, in introducing Flight, you mentioned um, this important idea of kind of connecting back to the data and um, you know enabling things like and data providence and this you know kind of loop that you pointed out where your your inference actually is you know data for your next train mm-hmm. or a future yeah. train yep. at least talk more about kind of how that works like i'm thinking the thing that comes to mind as i'm hearing that is airbnb has a project that's kind of a, an adjacent project to their big head platform that is focused on uh, like doing, you know, point in time feature uh, mapping and management and um, feature repository, that kind of yeah. thing. Is, yeah. are that, is that the kind of thing we're talking about? 
that could be one of the of things yeah. but it's not like exactly what we're talking yeah. about but like i think your it's feature service is well, let's call it like a generic name features yeah, feature features as a service right mm-hmm. uh, wood is uh, is an implementation on top of this potentially that allows mm-hmm. you to pass data like consume the data back into the model yeah. uh, and also build and send it to feature service what we are referring to is the causal causal dependencies between uh, the compute and the actual production of that data and then further consumption of data by the next compute layer and you know production so now let's take an example uh, you get a map from OSM open street maps mm-hmm. uh, if we consume it and you build a graph the road network out of it then some other team actually analyzes the road network in real time that's happening and uh, creates the traffic pattern that's that are happening at the moment on the road and annotates the road network with some speed profiles that's what we call them and then the third team actually consumes these two things and creates the final road network that's deployed to production mm-hmm. uh, so when we did a prediction on ETA we would want to know hey, which version of the map did i use and what was the speed profile at that point in time and what were the traffic conditions that rela- led to that speed profile that's the type of question that we want to answer so to go to that uh, you need to have a full trace in the system of how the data was generated when did it get generated when did it get passed on to the next bit and then uh, so we call this typically lineage uh, or provenance as you said mm-hmm. uh, and and the way we track this is our type system was the the other reason why we had our mm-hmm. type system is to do have the the central engine uh, automatically publish all of this uh, data as it's generated by every single task execution mm-hmm. to a central service that actually just records a unique signature of the execution and what did it generate uh, the inputs and the outputs uh, so now you have a relationship between what got generated by what and now you can create a graph because you know the graph that ran like flight knows intrinsically that how what was the computation graph so mm-hmm. it will you can go in and create the causal dependency structure across these data sets. We do this today the exposed thing that you get in open source mm-hmm. uh, is not the full we don't show the dependency tree that will come out soon uh, mm-hmm. at some point but we are using this for memoization. So if you recompute uh, the same uh, same data set let's say uh, you took some data set and you transformed it and uh, it produced an output some other user goes in and mm-hmm. takes the same data set and transforms it and produces the same output potentially because the code really has not changed in the past people would like we, we would spend money on a lot of compute mm-hmm. a lot of computing and doing the same yeah. thing yeah. so then the solution would be oh let's create a intermediate hive table or whatever right things mm-hmm. like that but that's not really what it was for for many artifacts that are like images right they are not if you did luminance sampling on some set of images and you're not going to store them in hive i think people mm-hmm. do that but we don't um <laughs> but what we do is because we can identify the compute process and the set of inputs that were given we create a unique signature of that and so next time when we observe that the same thing is being run flight just smartly replaces it with the existing outputs now you have to mm. tell flight that this process is reproducible Mm-hmm. because if it has side effects or it is like you know if you're using random number generator or something right, that might right. not work so right. we uh, you have to tell us but if you tell us then we just go and replace any execution of that on the platform across the company so that saves 
money and time mm-hmm. and because the iteration time now like if you if you're running something that's 10 steps like a 10 step pipeline and you fail on the 10th step you just fix the 10th step and rerun it right and the nine steps just are cached so you just automatically flight will fast forward you to the 10th step and mm-hmm. say okay let's run that guy again and uh, so this is what we call as memorization yeah. so it's a bite uh, you've described it as kind of a workflow engine it's not a a a data store or something that is like creating snapshots or anything it's more like you can think of it more like metadata and pointers to exactly. you know existing training data mm-hmm. and interim data transform data output data etc exactly yeah exactly and or presumably you're also kind of tracking model versions as they're trained yes so we yeah we have um that's one of the things we are a bit opinionated about uh okay. flight is um uh, every uh, artifact in the system all the data produced all the definitions of all the tasks and workflows um are immutable um so we have versions strict versions versioning scheme um that you can use your own versioning scheme but it has to be strict <laughs> as in mm-hmm. you can't mutate uh something and and try to uh, uh register it or produce it with the same version again um so we uh, when we produce any metadata about uh, tasks outputs or whatnot uh they are always uh, unique like or the signature is always unique mm-hmm. uh and that allows us throughout the system to always refer to uh, very consistently to like executions past executions in the history and the, the produced artifacts and produced models and you know anything that went through the system uh with very confidence that you know we know exactly which even like piece of code produced that um um so yeah yeah hmm. and you should be able to fully rerun reproduce yeah. it but it'll cause a new version we don't even have one single update api in the entire yep. code yes. base so mm-hmm. because you have it's like a functional that system <laughs> yes mm-hmm. <laughs> What's the smallest kind of use case that you can envision someone using this for? Does it make sense and is it kind of approachable enough for kind of a, you know, a single person to kind of clone a repo and like actually get some value out of it or do you need yes. a team of, you know, <laughs> yes. 10 infra great, ML infra that's people? Or? <laughs> that's a great question. Great question. Great question. Yes. Uh we uh, and I will say like our work there is not done. Uh but mm-hmm. we have put a lot of effort to make the uh the first time experience and the maintenance for small uh projects as you mentioned uh very approachable. Um we have we written have written docs that like I would say maybe most of the the time like the effort we put in the docs where in the docs that tell people how to get started so it's like made that easy we even sometimes went back to like our architecture and what not to try to you know make that easy when like we looked at the docs and it's like that's a lot of steps this is not okay mm-hmm. let's go back and redo things right mm-hmm. uh, so that's one part of it i i would say the the other part i think is um we we have seen that in a lot of cases people when they get started in developing a model or um or even doing some transformation or what not they don't think initially um unless they have done that before they don't think that they will need a workflow for it uh they think you know we'll uh, spawn off a notebook and do my thing and I'll be happy right um which 
usually is the case in the beginning, right? Um, until, you know, somebody leaves the company or uh, you start, you, like you want to go back to a model that worked, but you don't know which version of the code produced that and, and so on. And then you start realizing the problems and the need for such systems. Um, but by trying to make it as um, easy to get started as approachable, we hope that at one point it becomes um, like a standard or a given that you always start there. Um, and the system, like the, the friction between I am have nothing to the first task or the first execution uh, um, is almost not there. Uh, it, more people would get into the habit of doing this as the first step before writing your first piece of code. Um, and it sets you up for success later. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we are yeah. basically saying that every company should grow and become great and, you know, start with what we think is like yeah. the bare minimum and it will it will evolve with you, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's an evolvable system. The other bit that I want to add to yep. that is that I think that one of the reasons why we moved to Kubernetes is to make that like that first case experience and like for small company experience really, really good. Mm-hmm. Kubernetes is great to get, like, you know, you can go to any of the clouds and get one Kubernetes cluster. Um, and we use Customize. Uh, I don't know if you know of that project, but that's like a pretty interesting project. All of flight is really one YAML. Uh, and you can say kubectl uh, apply minus F that YAML and boom, you get a uh, flight yeah. cluster, um, including all the things that we just talked yeah. about. Wow. Okay. Yeah, you can even do that on the like a Docker for desktop or equivalent. Like on your machine, you don't even have to go to a cloud provider to get started. And uh, set like it will set it up even with menu uh, to for storage. Uh, so you will get like the full experience, your annual tasks, and once you're ready to you know take it to the next level, run on a on you know AWS or uh, GCP or whatnot. Um, the the you don't have to like change how you were doing things or how you wrote your tasks. Uh, they will just seamlessly run on the on a bigger cloud within Lyft. And we talked about this in the presentation yesterday. We we run a multi-cluster setup flight. Uh, it's not a single cluster, but of course it, you will not start there, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and we did not start there. We started with a single cluster. Uh, we soon outgrew that and started you know deploying multiple clusters of flight. And the and users when you say multi-cluster. What's the multi-tenancy models? Like a single user has stuff running on multi-clusters or you just have multi-clusters and you have some users on one cluster and some on another? We have multiple clusters and mm-hmm. we for, for the user though, it's one cluster. So we abstract that entire thing behind a okay. service. And the way we spawn off uh, the work, it depends on the load of the system or priority okay. classes or things like that. And is that all stuff that's happening in the open source or this it's is all, all related to the all way that you're operating it? No, it's, it's all open, all open source. source. Interesting. So, so, yeah, you don't need to do this. Like you, you don't have to use multi-cluster, but let's say your company grows further beyond yeah. that single cluster. Yes, flight will evolve with you. Yeah. Yeah, um, yeah we basically open source everything that we do at Lyft. Yeah. Some other thing that I just talked about, like the lineage and whatever, will come soon. Yeah. But most of the things. Uh, yeah, what's exciting about this for me is that you know there are many many companies that are doing this kind of thing internally. You know, we talked about Facebook, Airbnb, Uber. You know, obviously with Michelangelo, some have talked about open sourcing. Sure, uh, but I'm not sure I can think of you know any kind of name brand company that is open sourced their internal platform, you know, outside of like TFX, if you consider that Google open sourcing their internal sure. platform. Yeah. 
Um, so this is... But PFA doesn't come with an execution portion of it, right? It's just basically right. the library at the yeah, moment. Right, so. right, right, right. And so this is the library that um, does all the, the type stuff. There's the the execution engine. piece, workflow engine. You know, after the step after the cube CTL, like, is it spinning up a web front end that I can yep. Yep. see stuff? Yep. Our web yep. front end's pretty... Snappy too. We show yeah. like errors in the UI and graphs okay. and yeah. things like that. You can click, you get log links in the UI and, okay. and like inputs and outputs and the artifacts right. produced. All of that is in the UI too. Yep. And awesome. there's a CLI too, of course. And tell me a little bit about the like the the process of open sourcing it. Like, was that <laughs> the, the size says it all? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, so my my life has been <laughs> like so I had a baby five months ago, oh five months God. ago, and I had another baby now right. flight. So, uh, <laughs> so it's like having literally having two babies at the same time. It's a twin, uh, twins, and I'm I've not slept almost for five months probably, uh, and and so has the team. Like been a fantastic job. So. Yeah, that's why we took this long, actually. Mm -hmm. We started the process last year. Mm -hmm. uh, we could have been... I mean, let's start with why. Very good question. You have to pick why. And we did debate that a lot. We did a lot. Right? Like, yeah. Because especially the, so. maybe, right? the previous <laughs> system wasn't uh, wasn't going to be open yeah. sourced. It was zipped so, only. So like when this came, this... When the new when we started decided yeah. to uh, rebuild Actually, it, I remember even Hatham joined, and and one, that was one of the questions. Why do you want to open source it? Right. Yeah. Like, mm -hmm. um, I think what happened is there was interest from outside. Was one of the reasons. Uh, I don't need to name like who where it was, but there was some interest. Uh, the other thing is we realized this is such a big, like big problem to solve. That, and I said this in the I think before, but a small nine or ten people team cannot this right it needs to be uh, an industry-wide effort hopefully if not at least like a few mm -hmm. few tens of people working mm -hmm. on this um and and all with like if we do set the right primitives uh then we can let it evolve into the into the piece that it needs to be right and and that gets great stuff for Lyft. Like if we, we get, for example, we don't, we currently only have a Python SDK, mm -hmm. but uh, I know there are other companies that are saying that we, we want to add a Scala SDK for this. And we are like, awesome. We will use it, right? Because there is demand for this at Lyft. Uh, yeah, yeah. But we don't have the time to build this. So that's mm -hmm. uh, one, a definite biggest reason that get basic leverage. Mm -hmm. uh, second is uh, Lyft open sourced on Y. Yeah, uh, it was a foundational technology for Lyft too, mm -hmm. and it's it's been it's been you know amazing success, success, right? But, community, yeah. yeah. Yes. So um, we are not saying we are going to be even ten percent of that. We like um, that's just <laughs> yeah. too much. But uh, from that we learned that people actually like it's a great hiring tool. Uh, you are not working on a technology in the company that's that now you have to hire engineers and teach them. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you are going to work on a technology that they have probably used at their previous jobs. And that's great for yeah. uh, Lyft. So, and uh, yeah. yeah, and so just yeah. great for the team, potentially, yeah. right? So why not? And I would like to just add to all of this. Uh, I, I think we, as we talked throughout the conversation today, um, there are a few 
things we strongly believe in. Um, uh, and we wanted to have that debate in the open uh, because I think it will not only influence like this product or similar products, it will influence like the entire ecosystem, how it, uh, how it interacts with each other, how, how you do serving even after like the, all of that, even if you don't build these pieces, yeah. uh, the concepts, like the underlying concepts. Um, uh, and I think it, like we, we see that it does bring something to the table that isn't there yet. Um, uh, so we wanted to make sure that you know we have that conversation. Like it, it will we think advance like the entire uh, like the ML infra community overall uh, to hopefully a slightly better place. Well, hi Tom, Ketan, uh, thanks so much for taking the time to chat with us. Thank you, Sam. Thanks for having Amazing. us. Yeah. yeah. All right, everyone. That's our show for today. To learn more about today's guest or the topics mentioned in this interview, visit twimmelai.com. Of course, if you like what you hear on the podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening and catch you next time.